0: Okay, uh, so we're going to continue on in our series songs, uh, songs. This will be the last time that I'm going to preach for probably a month, and then we're going to actually let some other people come and talk to you about different things. Uh, yeah, so Leslie will talk next week about marriage and intimacy. Um, and then in two weeks, the le- ladies from Jesus Project Ministries are coming by, and they're just going to tell you a little bit about their ministry, their heart, things that they've learned uh, you know, about the character of God and doing the work that they're doing in inner city New Orleans. And that's going to be great. Don't miss that. Uh, And then, uh, you know, March, we'll do some other, you know, uh, kind of um, different things about Song of Solomon leading up to our Easter service, which will be a special service that none of us have planned. So we have no idea how special it's going to be. Um, And that'll be ending the Song of Solomon series with um, love as strong as death, uh, which, yeah, it's beautiful. Let's uh, see, right? <laughs> this is a line right from uh, Song of Solomon. Okay. So, um, if you have any questions about this uh, series, you're welcome. You know, to listen to um, our uh, sermon audio online on our website. Uh, this has been a really tough series for me, just because this is really a seminar type thing. I asked Matt Wills what he thought about the series of the day. He said, "Yeah, it just seems like you get to the end of your series and you have all this other stuff to say, and that's because I do." Um, and so it's really tough trying to figure out what stuff to include here and what not to and so again I'll tell you it uh, if you really are interested in learning more about this thinking more about this come to our pizza theology on gender and sexuality on April 10th okay? because we'll spend an entire day doing that and talking about it Um, and there's a lot more people that will be talking about it other than just me so you'll get to hear a lot of other opinions and perspectives okay? Um, So to sum up from week one, you know, we talked about gender and the role of gender. Why did God create us male and female? Uh, And just talking about trying to be really careful about going to two ends of the extreme, that there are no differences between us, which is often uh, sometimes what, you know, modern folks think, that we have no significant differences. But also being really careful um, about not wanting to the other uh, extreme, that there's some man character in the scripture that is the biblical ideal for man and a female character that's the biblical idea for female what we see in jesus is often a lot more mixture of those qualities so what do we do with that how do we understand that what does that even mean And uh, being able to engage that and be able to talk about a lot of that uh, in healthy ways so that's what we talked about in week one week two um some of you don't know what we talked about but um i know we talked about the the idea of attraction and beauty And that often, uh, you know, we look to the appearance of things to tell us what is in the essence of things. Um, And God created both to be beautiful, but not both to be the same. Uh, Meaning that just because something appears to be great and good doesn't necessarily mean that it's essence, it's a very good thing at all. Uh, We see this all the time when folks date, and they date based on, you know, appearance type factors. I'm going to go date the sexiest person I can find. Because, you know, we're both sexy and that's the common ground we have. Well, good for you, but that's not going to make for a very good relationship long term. Um, because your personalities may be completely different. Your values may be completely different. And yet we still date like this a lot. Uh, and men may be more, you know, accused of the whole dating for sexiness. But women there, you do the same thing, right? It yeah. uh, might not just be for outward appearance, but I've noticed in my years of ministry, and I know I'm going to make a lot of ladies mad about this, a lot of you guys like the quiet guy quiet guy who never speaks his mind and never says anything. And that way you can make him in your own image. I know what you're doing. I've watched a lot of girls over the years. The quiet guy that's pretty attractive. Everybody likes him. And loud, obnoxious people like me get left behind. So, um, just kidding. But it's true. Girls did not like me. I don't know how I convinced Chelsea to marry me. Uh, yeah. Fair enough. Um... So, uh, we, we can't equate appearance with the essence of things. And so, uh, this whole topic of sexuality is complex and it's complicated. And too often we're looking at appearances to try to define the essence of things. We're not really, really trying to understand people, we're trying to categorize them. And I'm going to build off of that and try to explain that a lot more today. But I'm going to tell you that today could be a really divisive sermon. And I'm just going to tell you that ahead of time. I'm speaking from my own lack of experience and lack of understanding about the world. This is in no way a message directly from our church as the party line for what we think. In fact, I know firsthand that there are people in our church who are really all across the spectrum when it comes to their beliefs about homosexuality and even about premarital sex, both of which I'm going to tackle head on today. Um, And we're okay with that to a degree. I mean, we want to have good conversations. We want to talk about it. We want to confront each other in love. We want to speak the truth in love. But at the end of the day, we're going to be okay on these issues that seem pretty debatable in some ways. We're going to be okay talking about it. And we're going to have the spirit of Christ in our our interactions with each other. We're not going to do what's easy to do, which is to come out with a statement of faith and say, this is exactly what we believe. And if you don't believe it, get out. Nor are we going to do the easy, other easy route, which is just, just not talk about it. and Pretend like it doesn't exist. and Pretend like it doesn't enter into our brains as, well, how do we answer these questions? We're not going to do either one of those. We're going to do the hard stuff, which is talking about it. And if we make people mad in the process, all right, I'm sorry. I don't want to make you mad. No one's out to try to offend you by the sermons that we're preaching. We're just trying to think through this stuff. Make sense of it. It's complicated. So hopefully you know that, and that's the cautionary warning of this, Is I'm probably going to make some of you angry today. Um, and others of you, maybe you're going to th- agree with me, but you're going to agree with me for the wrong reasons, because I just made you happy, not because you thought about it. I don't know. But this is a divisive issue, and I hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll be willing to engage us in co- talking about this stuff, and that we can figure it out uh, together, uh, and certainly we can figure it out with God um, you know, giving us wisdom and insight in it. I want to also remind you of the Song of Solomon activities that we posted on the Denton North page. We've only gotten a couple people to do that. Really do it. It's a great worship activity. It's a great opportunity to really think through some part in your life this next week to just sit down and approach God and try to make sense of this stuff. The three activities are really about, number one, learning how to really enjoy the significance of sex and what is that about. Two is trying to limit how sex has really you know, ruined relationships and some of the things that aren't so good about them and the third one I can never remember what that one's about, but it's about something. it's a mystery one you know <laughs> um, don't, don't tell me I don't remember just go look at it. So uh, do those so that we can draw off of those. we already have a couple and they're great. Uh, to actually implement in our sermon series. We're halfway through. What do I got to do to get you guys to do the worship activities? You know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I need to, like, do a $50 gift card. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> All right? Participate. You're a part of the body, you know? Uh, you guys have so many opinions about worship, and so therefore, you know, tell us your opinions. Give us some thoughts in our forum. That's on the, the Facebook page, okay? Uh, so, yeah, there we go. All right, we're going to start with the... Or we're actually going to read through Song of Solomon, Chapter 3. And... uh I only have one point today, so who knows if I can get through this within an hour or not. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, all night... Uh, oh, I have such a funny story about that. Should I share that, Chelsea, or no? Okay. So I pick up uh, Chelsea's Bible uh, this week to read Song of Solomon. Because I've been reading it in ASV, and I wanted to see what the NIV said. So she's got this little mini Bible. And I pick it up, and I read through this first line uh, of, All night long on my bed I look for the one my heart loves. And next to that is a line that says, what does it say? Somebody have written. No, 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 don't tell the story. Just what does the line say? This reminds me of you. <laughs> and I'm reading this thinking, who has put this in her Bible? Like, <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: so to my knowledge, she hasn't dated anybody that seriously in the past. Who is speaking Song of Solomon romantic love to her? So, you know. After I cursed her name, um, just kidding, I called, and of course, it's a joke by one of our dirtier friends, Autumn Priestley. um, You know her, you know her, but whatever. Um, And so, you know, I was comforted by that. But okay, all night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city through its street and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. All right, our heart loves this guy. Um, I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house to the room of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse nor awaken love until it so desires. Hopefully you're seeing that that's a consistent theme throughout this um, uh, Song of Solomon. So, we switch gears now. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of a merchant? Look at Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it from wood of Lebanon. Its post he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, your daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. Whew, that's a mouthful. Okay, so, lots of interpretations here, as you can imagine. Um, Ian Proven, whose commentary we're kind of basing some of our thoughts on, or my thoughts on here, uh, says this carriage isn't a carriage at all. Actually, if you would look at sort of what's being talked about here, other versions say his traveling couch. (laughs) This doesn't sound near as cool. Um... That what's actually happening here, and I, I can't really fill in all the blanks here, and so if you want to go back and do some exegetical work you know, uh, or, or the background work, historical work, you kind of do that on your own, um, is probably a, he's actually describing a room, a chamber of Solomon's house, uh, and this would kind of mesh well with the idea, number one, that silver and gold like they're describing in the woods of Lebanon would literally be impossible to lift up, and two, this idea of knowing how many you know, warriors uh, are, attend this bedroom chamber, things like that. And rather than the carriage itself traveling, and I, I really feel bad about going into this without explaining it, but I'm going to, uh, he's actually providently At least thinks that what's really being traveled here are the people coming up with their, you know, incense and myrrh and all that stuff. That people are traveling through his bedroom. Okay, uh, meaning that uh, this is sort of what the king is doing: one woman after an next traveling uh, through his bedroom. If you go back and read that, if you think that's the interpretation, if you like, oh, that's just too far, uh, then whatever. You do with it what you will. But we've been taking this the approach to Song of Solomon as being an intentional comparison or contrast between the love that this woman has for this shepherd man and the love that she's been coerced into having uh, as, as a result of being a part of the king's harem. Okay, that's that's how we're operating here. And so here you have these sort of two bedrooms being compared against each other, two lovers and how they do love compared against each other, um, and a whole lot of significance that, that could be drawn out of these two comparisons. Significance that we ultimately won't. Uh, go into because we just don't have time. So, and you know, we're not going to study through this in the way that uh, you could if you just sat with it on your own, reading through it. I'm already losing most of you who are like, all right, whatever, let's move on. Um, so, <laughs> point number one, and only point I have of today, here we go. You know, my points are like terribly long and trying to rhyme or something, and I'm just the cheesy Christian preacher guy. God made us to value each other as image bearers, okay? God made us to value each other as image bearers. Not use each other as mirror images. So God made us to value each other as image bearers. Not use each other as mirror images. This thought comes directly from my favorite TV show, The Wire. And, uh... There in season four, which is all about politics and school system, there's a a politician who kind of starts off as a pretty good guy, and as time goes on, the structure of politics just sort of corrupts him. And in one scene in particular, he's at a fundraiser, and he dismisses his wife and children to go home, and earlier you see him kind of eyeing this girl at the bar, and the girl's eyeing him back. And by the way, this is about to be a graphic I'm going to explain. So I'm looking around. Okay, no kids in our chairs. That's good. Um, and so the scene from him dismissing his mom or uh, dismissing his wife and uh, his kids. Sorry. Uh, the next scene immediately goes to him having sex with this woman on a counter. Okay, and she's beautiful. You know, no doubt about it. But it's hard to be aroused by this scene because what's happening is so you have him having sex with this girl. She's on the counter. The mirror is behind him. And instead of looking into her eyes or looking at her, he's simply looking at himself in the mirror. And it's just this sort of awful scene where he is in this pleasurable moment, pleasurable act, and he's actually looking at himself. And, of course, The Wire has such a subtle, well, this one's not so subtle, um, but profound way, I think, of talking about really terrible things that go on in our society. And in my mind, here is like the perfect example of how we've taken this really beautiful and wonderful thing and made it about us. He is literally having sex with himself, if you think about it like that. He is projecting his desires, his sense of ego, his arrogance, on to this girl that he's ultimately just objectifying and using for a little bit of pleasure. All the while looking at himself in a mirror. I mean, the scene is just sticks in your brain, whether you want it to or not. Uh, just sticks in your brain. As people of God, we're made to value each other as image bearers, not use each other as mirror images. And I don't think there's another um, environment outside of sex where we do this with people, where we use them as simply mirror images. To image back to us what we want out of them. Sex has been used for so long in our society to do just that. We don't see people as people. We see them as something to be accomplished. To objectify. To feel like I'm expressing myself. To feel like I'm belonging. To feel like I have a little bit of entertainment for the night. Whatever it is. We mirror back what the desires that we have. And don't even look at the person that we're talking about. And so he made us to value each other's image bearers, uh, not each other as mirror images. You compare that scene to Jesus in his ministry. My goodness. He constantly, constantly came across people who nobody else saw anything good in. There was no mirror image imaging back to him anything good. It was all just bad stuff for the most part. And he had the ability to truly see them as image bearers. The centurion, who he complimented as having the greatest faith in all of Israel. Who would have guessed that one? He could have easily used this person for his advantage. See, Romans, you know, they're no good. They don't deserve, you know, what, what we. They don't really have a true faith, you know, whatever he wanted to do. But instead, he finds something in that person as an image bearer and compliments him more than any of the other Jewish people he comes across, which is just crazy, really, when you think about it. Jesus had an ability to see image bearers uh, and almost everybody came across. He used a slutty Samaritan woman to be his missionary. <laughs> to all of the Samaritans there. Who would have guessed? Who would have thought? Who would have chosen her? She didn't mirror back to him anything wonderful or great. He didn't associate himself with her and think, man, you know, this makes me a really important person. He saw her as an image bearer. The leper who he touched, intentionally touched out of affection, not touched after he healed them, but touched them before he healed them Was an image bearer, nothing in, in the leper's image, right? Communicated back to Jesus. This guy is really, really valuable. His appearance was not valuable. It was nasty. It was ugly. It made people revolt and send those people into a whole separate community. But Jesus saw an image in him because he wasn't worried about what that person mirrored back to him. It was just it's amazing to see how Jesus uh, changes this, turns it up on, uh, on its head. So um, Jesus had the ability to really love people and see them through the eyes of image bearers, not as categories. Uh, Matt and I were talking about this, too. When we were talking about the culture class, just that people have a propensity To see people in these predefined categories. We see them first for the category uh, that we place them in. Whatever label we've put on them. And we begin to identify them by that label and by that category. As if, you know, God's work in them could only do go so far in this area, you know. So for uh, fill in the blank, yeah, he's, you know, okay. But we immediately start with that. Jesus didn't seem to, to be too concerned with the whole category stuff. With the whole labeling stuff. He seemed to be able to walk into almost any and every environment and see a person for who they were without all the categories that society had placed on them. just did. It's the God we serve. It's a pretty amazing thing. Our God is like this. Our God is the God that even himself doesn't use us as mirror images to see back to himself how great and good he is. That is not what Jesus went around doing. Had he done that, what would he have done? He would have hung out with the Pharisees, built the kingdom, overcome Rome, done all these things that would have mirrored back to him importance. But what did he do instead? He hung out with a whole lot of people that made him look like he was unsuccessful, sinful, and no good. God, our God, isn't a God that uses us as mirror images. He's used us, given us this ability, rather, to value each other. He put our image in each one of us. This is a crazy idea, guys, and it's the thing that fundamentally separates Christianity from every other religion. That rather than us worshiping an image of God or God himself, God has put his image in us and told us to go be God to other people. That is unbelievable. You couldn't possibly plumb the depths of that idea without just sort of being going crazy. It's amazing. It's different. If you believe it, it's life changing. That he would truly put his image on each of us. is really a wonderful idea. Rather than just using us to see back, you know, what he wants to see. What makes himself important. It's the God we serve. That's why I think the Song of Solomon author is talking about not awaking love before it desires. Because love has both the propensity uh, for us to truly connect with people, but it has an awful propensity for us to often use each other and call it love. Call it love when in reality we're just using people. We love our own image. We don't love them as an image bearer. I, I could point out a million things in our society that are trends right now that verify this point. This whole ongoing no strings attached relationship stuff and you know, the Barna research that says that most young people now have an idea about sex that's ultimately about personal fulfillment, self-expression. I do it so I can connect with someone else. I don't think that's any worse than the idea that sex is simply about reproduction, but it's still not a very biblical idea. That sex has become simply something that's just, I'm expressing my own love for you. Okay, well, I don't know about that. Seems very you-centered. Not sure if sex is really about that. So more and more young people, you know, the idea of sex as being just something that sort of connects you to someone else. A sort of like short-term, long-term, doesn't really matter, it's great. I know a lot of guys, and I think girls to some degree, but we won't try to go into that. Who have two sex lives? Uh, there's a really offensive video, I mean movie that I think presents this point of view, but I don't think you need to watch it. Just read the synopsis. Most movies I'll like, you know suggest to you maybe you want to go watch, but it's called Don Juan. Um, Don Juan. Don John. Yeah, John. Don John. That's me, man. This is what I do. I inherited from my dad, you know. Yeah. Don John. I think in some ways it aggrandizes sex and sexuality But it definitely does bring up a really good point About guys having two sex lives They have the sex life that is primarily about Masturbation and pornography A sex life that is really about them and them alone And then this other sex life Which is actually with a real human And a lot of guys prefer the former over the latter They prefer the sex life that's really about them And the issues we have in our society With pornography, particularly for men Is unbelievable Guys are learning sex from pornography Not from anybody else what do you think? I mean, what do you think they're going to do with that? And our society just for the most part is kind of like, you know, half of them are kind of indifferent and the other half of them it's well, not so good so long as we, you know, maybe it's okay so long as there's no sex trafficking involved. But we've become pornographic in our sex lives and in our thinking about that. I think one of the worst things is that our self-image has been tied to sexuality. If someone isn't obviously sexual or obviously really attracted, attractive sexually, they're somehow not Attractive. I mean, when I ask my students, you know, what do you spend your time, what are the things you spend your uh, most uh, money and time on? Almost all of my students, besides drugs and alcohol, women put makeup. I mean, just the idea that women have to wear makeup in our society to be beautiful. Now, I'm not telling you all you women to go not wear makeup, all right? You know, I'm not not, making a statement about that. I'm just saying that we're so obsessed with that. Tying it to sexuality. But if you're not a sexual person, if you can't portray yourself as a sexual person, then somehow you're not attractive. On and on, the list goes down. Sex trafficking and porn, prostitution, girls forced into a guy world. The biggest thing that's changed about sexuality in our society is not guys are having more sex. It's girls are treating sex like guys once treated it, and have always treated it. A lot more girls are having sex now uh, than guys. Now, First, feminists decided, you know, well, that's a really good thing. That's a freedom thing. Women should be able to do that without having all these names associated with them. But then there's a whole broken movement of feminists who've now said, wait a minute, I think what we've ultimately done is just pressured a whole lot of girls to buy into guys' sexuality, which is, you know, have sex for the pleasure and not really worry about it being connected to anything more significant. And so we have a lot more, uh, you know, girls being, I think, pressured into sex. I I have uh, probably two girls each semester... Maybe three a year That literally ask me What do I do when my boyfriend is texting me Telling me that if I really loved him I would have sex with him They just ask me after our sexuality conversation And it's a conversation I mean, Usually I say something along the lines Well he doesn't really love you then But well, that's a little extreme because we all know That that's probably not completely true Guys tend to have a motor when it comes to sexuality And they just drive that motor As you know, far as they can often Now can we relate that to them just being guys I don't know, but this is a problem Guys, pressuring girls not to say that girls don't do it too. But you know what I mean. This whole modesty debate. Oh, The girls, Christians are so quick to point out that girls should be more modest. And yet, not very quick to point out that they should be less lustful. (laughs) This is something my wife has challenged me on a lot lately. Just this idea of, you know, well, so what's modesty for a girl? Can a girl not look, you know, uh, sexy and that be an okay thing? Or should they dress up so guys, you know, don't have to worry at all about lust? But in our society, again, I mean, I could go through all of these. There's a lot of them. A lot of things that, uh, that go back to us not really treating sexuality with image bearers in mind. So this brings up us up to a really a weird kind of problem in the scripture. And that is that we are generally uncomfortable with how little Jesus talks about sex. I'm doing a financial seminar after this, and I've got like 40 scripture references. <laughs> most of which that I could just pretty much come up with. Off the top of my head. Because he just talks about money all the time. But try to come up with like five references about sex and sexuality from Jesus. He does not talk about this a whole lot. Now that's led a lot of people to say you must not care. and Let's just come up with whatever we want to come up with. It's led just as many people to sort of focus on these two or three verses. And come up with all kinds of crazy ideas related to them. And I want to go through one in a moment that's pretty important. So we turn to Paul. Paul has some really interesting thoughts about sex. And without even really recognizing it, what we often do is we pit Jesus against Paul. Like, as if Paul had a better understanding of sexuality than Jesus did. we like, Jesus, no, you didn't really help us much on that area. We'll just move to Paul. I don't think so. Paul would find defense with that if we really did that. Paul's drawing on what he sees in Jesus and talking about these things. So I want to take two passages, and I want to go through them really quickly. I want to give you a few primers for this conversation, though. Number one. Sexual immorality includes all kinds of stuff. It is simply a blanket term for all kinds of stuff in Scripture. Premarital sex, adultery, homosexual sex, sex and orgies, sex that's objectifying even within marriage. Plenty of married people have a real tough time seeing each other as image bearers when it comes to sex. Sexual immorality is a blanket term. It means a lot of things. And this idea that we've kind of like pigeonholed it into one or two meanings, for them it meant a lot of things. A whole lot. All in one. And so whenever you see that word, it's not that they're bypassing specific things about sexuality that we're interested in. We're just so obsessed with it, we've got a million different terms for it. In their (laughs) day and age, it was just a blanket term for pretty much anything that was illicit when it comes to sexuality. Alright? Number two. One of the reasons why we don't have a lot of really clear commands on sex particularly the negative aspects of sex, is because both Jesus and Paul affirm a marriage between a man and a woman. This marriage relationship is really a good thing to them, but, but so is singleness. They affirm both the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage. And often don't it choose, for whatever reason, this should say something to us, I think, uh, as well, To go into a lot of the negative aspects of sex and sexuality, but instead choose to positively affirm a monogamous relationship and marriage. They just do. They talk a lot of good. And that's interesting to have two guys who are single to be affirming marriage, but then to also be affirming singleness. And Paul seems to affirm singleness a little bit more later on, but that's another conversation is telling to us. They chose to approach us in very positive ways. And I think that's what trips us up some, is we, you know, we don't tend to look at the scriptures about positive affirmations of marriage as speaking to our sexuality. But how could they possibly not? Those scriptures speak to our understanding of the significance of sex just as much as any other passage. Because they're talking about the appropriate use of sex in a monogamous and committed relationship. Alright, so the first passage, which is, uh, oh man, 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20. Tackle that one. Someone want to read it in the NIV? 12 through 20. Okay, I guess not. I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual morality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Okay. Now, a lot of Christians have read that as, oh, well, sin, sexual sin somehow like, belongs in a category unto its own. And we've wrongly then associated sinful issues as being more important than all other issues. But nowhere in that does Paul say that it's different and more important. In fact, I would argue... But in some ways what he's saying is that there's a component of sexual sin that is really primarily about a body thing, a physical thing. Whether that's that sex stays in our brains for a long time and we just can't get rid of those thoughts. Whether it's because this is a deep and intimate, you know, uh, communication, which is actually the word that he uses there for body, soma, between two people. And it's pretty much the most intimate bodily thing you can do with another human being. Who knows? But to say that somehow sexual sin is worse than or different from all other sins, I think is not really staying with the spirit of what Paul's saying. He's making a claim that sexuality is different in ways because it has different consequences. Yeah? Why, but then why do we feel that sexual sin is way worse? like Individually, why do we feel that it's... I think there's a lot of reasons. I think one of the biggest ones is because sexuality has changed so much in the last 50 years. And Christians have been too often associated with conservatism. And so it's a backlash. It's a reaction to the ways our society has really changed dramatically. So we feel the need to impulsively react. It's the Pray the Gay Away movement. Rather than thinking through some of these issues in complicated ways, we immediately jump into the situation and say, okay, all gay people need to change. We're going to you know, give them extreme counseling and figure that out. Rather than really understanding and recognizing, okay, well, what precedent do we even have for that? You know, we have a whole movement of gay people who've truly changed in these ways? And a lot of those folks just didn't figure those issues out. They just immediately jumped in and we're going to fix it. And we're going to do something about it. It's reactive, I think. That's at least one explanation. I think another one is because sexuality has always been something that's interesting to humans. That we've not understood. It's been complicated. It's been mysterious. It's been, ugh. So we just don't do very good when we think about these things as being mysterious. But I do not think he's elevating the significance of sexual sin here. And I don't think you can prove that. In fact, if it was so important and so devastating, why is it that it's not mentioned more? And the folks who say that, I think are right. If any sin should be elevated, it should be greed, Because that's what Jesus talks about the majority of the time. So this false prioritization of sexual sin as being somehow wholly different than other sin, I think is silly. And is unbiblical. Okay? Now, does sexual sin have with it different consequences? Sure, all sin has different consequences. But Jesus himself is the one, remember, who equates lust with adultery, <clears throat> which is a pretty big statement. Does lust and, do lust and adultery have the same consequences? I would say no. But in regard to, and we're going to use this passage in a moment, what is he saying? It's we've got to kind of explore that and understand it. You have any questions on that? You're welcome to ask questions. I mean, you know, you got questions, you got questions. I probably won't answer most of them because I don't know how to, but... <laughs> so, I think what Paul is saying here is that there's something significant about sex. That there is some deep communication, bodily communication, between two people who are having sex. Now, we might like to pretend that there's not that. We might to pretend that that's not really important. But I think that's what Paul's saying here. And when I made fun of Matt a few weeks ago about, you know, liking Scott Peck, I think this is what Scott Peck is drawing on. This idea that somehow this is a deep... Communion of sorts between two people who like merge into one in orgasm. Okay? Sorry, you know, I'd use that word again. I apologize. But the problem is, that's only one type of way we merge. We can do this with conversational intercourse, we can do this with a lot of different ways. Okay? Sex isn't somehow this amazing, wonderful, better than all other things type way to be with someone. <laughs> And when somehow we elevate that as the most amazing way to connect with another individual, I think we're moving away from the biblical text on it. And we're using our society's obsession with sex and it's clouding our understanding of it. That God somehow created sex as like the ultimate experience. Alright, well then what are we going to do in heaven? Because it doesn't seem like we'll be having sex there. (laughs) You know, when I was younger... Well, never mind. I (laughs) I think I used that earlier, that joke. Uh, we're not. So if it's such a significant, wonderful thing, now that's not to say that this isn't important. Obviously, it's important. Uh, Acts 15, what are the three things that, that Paul and the elders tell the new Christians not to do? One of them is sexual morality. So obviously, it's important. Okay? But walking the line between these tensions are very hard. Okay? It's very difficult for us to figure out. So, I'll say that about that. I'll say the next thing is that I think one of the other things he's talking about here is that sex has a lot of natural consequences. Bodily consequences. STDs. Uh, pregnancy when you're not ready. Um, you know, weight sticks in our brain. I mean, it has a lot of bodily consequences. And I think in that case, he's probably talking about it being different. Now, we can say the same thing about, like, cutting and all kinds of bodily problems that we have over eating... But then again, there's not necessarily a communion between two people in that case. And I think that's part of what he's talking about when he uses the word Soma. S-O-M-A. Go look it up. This word was very intentionally meant to mean bodies somehow interacting with each other. Okay? Matthew 5, 27 through 29. Okay? This will be the next one we go through. Matthew 5? Yeah. 27 through 29. The yeah. Uh, you said that we're using our society's view of sex, and I I couldn't finish that. I can't either because I don't really know. Okay. I forget 39. things like right after I say them. Really, you got it, uh, yeah, I have a question. Oh, question? Yeah. About, you said in 1 Corinthians. Yep. Um, what does Paul reference like when he comes up with this idea of sex? What is he like referring to back to like what Jesus said? Did he like come up with this? From his own thinking or was this like a reference to something jesus said that's part of what we're going to talk about right now okay. um yeah give me a second on that one sometimes i tell you that just to like avoid having to answer it uh but try to come back to it <laughs> i did that to you a couple weeks ago didn't i yeah that was really good i thought about that later i'm like oh good job you did a really good job pretending like you're going to answer that later on so uh, that's like congratulating congratulated myself on that preaching skill that i had uh Okay, so five, twenty-seven through twenty-nine. You've heard that it was said, "You shall not commit adultery." But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay, uh, so you know that pretty much explains it right there. I can, I mean, you know, just kidding. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> So, number one, I think what we see here is that Jesus is saying that he didn't come to save uh, just this, you know, physical behavior and sinning in our behavior. He came to also change our thinking on these things, which is often tied to our behavior. But then if we change the behavior and the behavior modification changes and somehow our thinking doesn't change at all, then we're not really that much further ahead. Okay? So that if we're incredibly lustful people... Um, but we've never committed adultery, well, we're good to go. And we think about this a lot. This is what's so interesting about sexual sin is itself we prioritize sexual sin. So it's an awful ill if you've, you know, accidentally kissed someone of the same sex, if you have the same-sex attraction. But, oh, as long as you're just, you know, looking at pornography in the, uh, you know, um, isolation of your home, you'll be okay. We won't worry about that too much. As if some sexual sins are far worse or far better than others. And maybe they are. But at least in part there's an argument here that Jesus is saying, okay, good for you that you haven't acted out on these behaviors. The problem is your brain's still messed up. And I'm here not to just fix your behavior and modify a few behaviors. I'm here to fix the brain too. And the thinking. And on what makes you this kind of person? So I think we have to be careful about separating this, this uh, you know, behavior stuff from the stuff that goes on in our brains. Some of us have awful sexual lives in our brains. Awful. Terrible. Many of us guys have been there and it's secret and hidden and somehow it's okay so long as I can keep it hidden. I'll rail against all the sexual behavior that I'm seeing but not do anything to the stuff that's messed up in my brain. That's not okay. Jesus didn't say that was okay, so it certainly isn't okay. And I think even the bigger point here, at least in part, at least the thing that I, that I, I come to, is that when one part of your body is defined by an ill, an, an, a sickness, a pain, that doesn't have to identify everything that you are. You've got to figure out how to deal with it and get rid of it. And I think that's what he's saying with this whole idea of gouging out your eye. I mean, you know, people have always pointed out the fact that a guy who gouges out his eye can still lust, right? I mean, it's always like the next line, I feel like people say. Yeah, that's true, he can't. Obviously, Jesus is not saying we should harm our bodies. He's saying that we shouldn't be defined by those sins in our lives that are a piece of, of who we are and what we're doing. We shouldn't be defined by them. We've got to throw them off. We've got to work on them. Don't let them take over. Don't let those parts of you define who you are. And I think that's really what he's talking about here, at least in part. So we circle back to what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians. I mean, Paul is saying that sexual sin is sexual sin. It's all bad. Just as bad as any other sin. That if it has any consequences that would be different from others, the consequences are these natural consequences that come from uh, either physical consequences that we have or consequences that we're perverting a relationship that we have between two people, a deep level of communication. But I don't think in any way is he elevating it above other sins. Okay? Not at all. And in fact, he's talking about a really specific situation here in Corinthians uh, where people have just sort of gone crazy, allowing sexuality to go way too far and unnatural and uh, is trying to pull them back, make them uh, make sense. I even think Jesus in this Matthew 27 passage is reflecting the idea that sin shouldn't define who we are and how we view people. They're not categories that they're a whole person. So, you know, their arm might be causing them to sin, but that doesn't mean their whole body is messed up and that we should just throw out their whole body and their whole person and identify them by their sin. I think this is maybe hard, uh, you know, to, to re- relate here, but uh, I'm going to move on and so I'm going to talk because we've got to kind of finish this up. Yep, I've already gone too long. Great. So what's the significance of sex? This is the question. What is the significance of sex? Christians have been trying to answer this question for a long time. They've often come unsatisfactorily with an answer that looks a lot like societal answers. Either it's about reproduction in marriage, okay? Which, I mean, okay, maybe it is. Maybe it's these survival type things that we relate to them. It's ultimately about personal fulfillment and self expression on the other end, you know, me kind of expressing who I am to another person and them expressing themselves back to me, which is more the modern day, you know, kind of understanding and idea of it. But alas, we come back to this word that no one seems to know intimacy, right? A word that, like love, means kind of nothing. So, my best attempt at describing and defining intimacy is a merging of two people who are committed so that they don't run the risk of using each other and have each other's best interest in mind. And intimacy is a of two people who are committed. Guys, that involves same-sex friendships. It involves heterosexual friendships. It involves marriage relationships. It involves almost every relationship that we have. We're called to intimacy with each other. Called to Intimacy. It's sort of the goal of our lives. It's not the goal we think of a lot because it's not really forefront and it's hard and challenging and truly merging ourselves with another person is really tough. And I think sex in part symbolizes that in a physical way, that merging. But I don't think it's the only thing. Conversation symbolizes that in physical ways. You know, doing stuff together. Is sex immensely more significant than me having a deep conversation with someone? I don't know. That sex is not some sure path towards intimacy. Just because a married couple is having sex doesn't mean they're intimate with each other. Yeah. They can do it out of compulsion. They can do it out of using each other and coercing each other into to sex. And there's a lot of things that get messed up really there. But intimacy is emerging merging of two people. And it's supposed to be representative of the Trinity, I think, in most things. I'm not talking about sex here. I'm talking about people merging, losing the boundaries of your identity and your preferences and truly loving someone enough to where you begin to be changed by them and deeply connected by them. And where the thought of leaving them is like leaving a family member. Not in this sort of emotional way only, certainly that's a part of it, but in a decision way. I'm sticking with this person. I'm committed to them. God's called us to that in every relationship we have. Now, not every relationship we have will be equally intimate, but he's called uh, that uh, out of us for, for a purpose. It represents the Trinity. This concept of the Trinity is unique among all other religions. The idea that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are somehow intertwined in community and belonging, which no one understands, and it doesn't make any sense. And the best I can get close to is God is just trying to teach us that that's our goal in our relationships with each other, to be so intertwined so as to merge our, our understandings and our preferences and to really love people and love them deeply and to do what's best for them even when it doesn't seem like it's what's best for us. Okay, so where does that leave us uh, with premarital sex and gay sex? <laughs> well, Those are the easy questions to answer here uh, towards the end. Can you have this type of sexual relationship without marriage? It's the wrong question. It's no different than the question of how far can I go and it still be okay. You're asking the wrong question. The Bible presents sex as a healthy thing that two people who are committed in intimacy do with each other. It's as simple as that. It doesn't mean that when you get married, your sex is going to be good and intimate, and you're going to have to work on it. But it certainly doesn't mean that just because you think you love someone and have decided in your mind that you're committed to them, that you get to have sex with them. I don't think so. Sorry, that may be a cultural idea that you really like, But it's not the idea that the Bible presents on sexuality. You don't like it? Deal with it. Let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. If I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. But premarital sex in the scripture has no place. Now in our society, that represents probably most of you who've done that. Are you forgiven for it? Is this the part where everyone gets guilty and shamed and feels like, Oh my gosh, I'm a ruined person as a result? No, because God has grace for us in this. But are there some natural consequences as a result of sex and playing around with sex before you're married? Absolutely. (laughs) They're going to stick in your brain. You're going to have to deal with them. You're going to bring them into your marriage. And it's going to be tough, and you're going to have to deal with it. But thankfully, God gives us grace in those moments to deal with this stuff and figure it out. But Guys, just because you have decided you're in love with someone doesn't mean you have sex with them. That is not in your best interest. You have to be committed to them. And the Bible's vehicle of commitment is marriage. Marriage isn't a societal thing. It's just not. It's a biblical idea. A joining of man and wife in a union together. Okay? So it's the wrong question. Can you have this type of sexual relationship without marriage? Have people probably had sex before marriage and then gone on to have great committed relationships? Uh, duh, of course. Does that mean that we want that to be the norm? No, I don't think so. We've got to be careful here. This is a big issue in a lot of different ways. And not just for the practical concern, not just because you can get STDs or because you're going to remember that sexual experience. But because God has called us to leave this communication, this interpersonal communication, for one person and to do that in marriage. And some of that we might not fully understand. I think some of it I'm trying to explain to you relates to the tendency we have to exploit people outside of commitment. To tell ourselves that we love them so that we can, you know, how many times have I counseled people? Well, I'm in love and they go and have sex and then alas, somehow that love ended. Well, go figure. They weren't really committed. So I think the question that we should be asking is, how would sex outside of a commitment show my desire to do what's best for this person? That's a much better question. Because if you can come up with a good answer, okay. But how would sex outside of a commitment, and by this type I'm definitely talking about marriage commitment, show my desire to do what's best for this person? Because I recognize this idea is so foreign to how our society currently thinks about sex. No one wants to get up here and preach a sermon on how premarital sex is no good. Because that's not cool anymore. It's not fun for people to hear that. The problem is I can't get away from the scripture uh, very, very far without recognizing that a lot of the ideas that we have in our society are just simply not biblical ideas about sex and sexuality. It's not. Yep? How does sex also show my desire to do what's best for this person? How could you possibly decide? Well, okay, I've decided. Yep, sex before marriage—it's going to do—it's going to do this person real good. Yep, it's going to really be a good decision for us to get into. No, we're not thinking like that. We're thinking like, well, can I get away with it? Yeah, is it that big of a deal? Probably not. We're asking all the wrong questions when it comes to this issue in my mind. But I want—I would challenge you to tell me, and if you have an example, an answer, let's talk about it tell me how you could possibly answer that it would be good for you to have sex outside of commitment and relationship, and that's in that other person's best interest. Well, they wanted it too. Oh, well, you know, we all know that we will always want what's good for us, so, you know, that's not good enough. <laughs> Sorry, okay? Now, again, guys, I know we live in a current day and age where most of us have experienced some type of, uh, you know, wanted or unwanted sexual uh, you know, behavior. Maybe it's been same-sex stuff. Maybe it's been opposite-sex stuff. God has plenty of grace, and He has ability to overcome these things. But it's not okay to use that grace as a permission to sin. Yeah, right. Okay? It's just not. Can He forgive it? You better believe He can. And will He make you a whole person? You better believe He can. Well, it takes some more work? You better believe it. But in that more work, God has the ability to show how great and good He is. Yeah, that's right. Okay? But it doesn't give us a license to sin. That makes no sense, what Paul would say. Okay. So, I'll give you back the challenge that Song of Solomon uh, Lady does. uh, Don't arouse love. There's too many risks for exploitation. You bring your previous sex into marriage, you know. Okay, can two people who are same-sex attracted have this type of intimate love? Well, of course they can have this type of intimate love. But here is the real challenge with this for me. I would love to believe that same-sex attracted people should be able to act on their desire to have a monogamous sexual relationship with someone of the opposite sex. I want to be there. I want to be there because I feel pressured to be there by my society. I want to be there because it's a quick answer for me to, to say, well, how could God possibly call somebody to not get married or to go against their natural way? There are a lot of reasons I want to be there, saying that it's okay. But I cannot in my biblical knowledge, get to that place. I can't. And I've even multiple times in my conversations with God tried to understand this and have heard specifically for me in my time uh, you better be careful with your political and sociological ideas on this. This is an area where I'm drawing the line. In my reading of the scripture, I think it's clear that being same-sex attracted is absolutely okay in terms of it's a part of who you are but is in no way okay in terms of acting out in that behavior. Yeah. It's just not. Again, is it any worse than any other sexual sins that we've all committed? No. And when we all get so upset because two gay people have sex and then turn around and we go light on the person or our friend who's had premarital sex, oh, that's, not, that's not near as bad because at least it's natural. What are you talking about? That's right. When we prioritize these things, now we're in trouble. We're making judgments that I don't think the Bible even makes judgments on. It's all lumped into sexual morality, And every now and again you get a verse that's talking about homosexual behavior. But there's like three. And two of them probably don't even really apply in some cases. So let's be really careful about how we prioritize that. In our relationship with the people and how we talk about this stuff. But no, I don't believe that same-sex attracted people... Uh, can act out on their same-sex attraction and having homosexual behavior and it, for it to be okay. Am I glad that marriage is legalized? I'll talk about that in just one second, okay? But, let me make a few caveat statements here. Absolutely, same-sex attracted people obviously should have intimate friendships. And is there a reason why same-sex attracted folks, people who are primarily same-sex attracted, not bisexual, have a desire to get married in our society that is friendless? You better believe it. Because a lot of them, it's, well, either be lonely or get married. And guys in particular, you have some real issues. We have some real issues when it comes to guys admitting that they have same-sex attraction. I've watched too often guys admit to that and then guys just distance themselves. That is the opposite of what men who have same-sex attraction need from you. Distance, lack of asking them about it, lack of physical affection... In a society where guys don't even know how to do friendship anymore, do we, can we possibly understand why same-sex attraction is so difficult? Yes. I was telling Matt this the other day, there is consistently each semester one or two of my students uh, who are gay men who say it's almost impossible to find a friend. A guy friend that they can just be a friend with, with no sexual behavior uh, involved in it. A part of the reason is because we have too many guys that immediately when someone tells says that they have a same-sex attraction, you can't handle it. Grow up. Yeah. It's a part of who we are. Yeah. Okay? It's a part of who we are. People didn't choose this lifestyle. You've got to be able to think about this and be deep and intimate friends. And so the folks over the years, folks like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I don't know if he was gay, or folks like... Um, Henry Nguyen, who, I, again, I don't know if he was gay. I think he was, maybe at one point said it. One of the things that allowed them to make their way through this life was deep and intimate friendships with the same sex. And were there a risk involved with that? I'm sure. It's like a risk in a heterosexual friendship where there's a possibility of being attractive. But we ought to be less concerned with that. Should it be an issue we deal with? Sure. If you've got a close friend and he's attracted to you, obviously you got to talk about that, Okay. But we ought not be afraid of that. And so I feel bad for people in our society who have same-sex attraction in a society where we just don't do friendship anymore. So they see marriage as the only way to really have a close relationship with someone. So it's no reason that this is, people are fighting for this. Um, so, I think we ought to be truth seekers in this. Uh, we've got to listen to folks, particularly within the church, who struggle with same-sex attraction, and, and hear their voice. There are plenty of folks in our church, in our church and in the church at whole, who are on both sides of this issue about homosexual behavior. Some who believe it is okay, and we ought to ordain it, and this is something that God's created, and we need to listen to them. And there's folks who are on the other end, who it's absolutely not okay, and even the preference itself is not so good. And we've got to listen. We can't just get around people who we agree with. We've got to listen, particularly if they're people who really love God and have faith. Because, you know, what are we going to lose by listening to someone who believes in something different than us? Uh, Probably not a lot. Our own little silly ideas will be challenged, and perhaps both of us will cause, have cause to really pursue God and pursue trying to get an answer for Him rather than just laying on certainty. We've got to be truth seekers in this. And I will say one thing before, you know, I have the praise team come back up, and that's simply that when it comes to gay marriage as a political issue, in my mind, this is a different issue. Now, it might be that I'm categorizing faith and compartmentalizing faith, but my views on separation of church and state don't follow immediately from my views on whether homosexual behavior is okay or not okay. So just because I believe that this is not an okay thing in terms of acting out on does not mean that I'm immediately opposed to gay marriage. Because at least in my mind, I have to decide whether I even feel like it's a Christian's right or responsibility to make laws about that on the whole. Do we really live in a society where Christians should impose... There are majority values on people. I don't know. I mean, part of me wants to think, well, yeah, I mean, I have the right to vote, so I should vote my conscience. Another part of me thinks, but I don't do this with other issues, so it seems really hypocritical. But in my mind, those issues are separate. And so for those of you who are thinking because, you know, you have one view or the other, and immediately that means it translates into a political view, I don't think so. I don't think see those things as being near as combined as I think we tend to make them. And particularly when I look at the kind of ethic of the scripture that where it talks about really loving people who aren't Christians and not expecting the same thing from them, um, but being able to really meet them where they're at and find common ground. I don't know. I just have some tough issues with these political statements that some people are making. So there you go. Uh, there's my really clear and, uh, you know, easy <laughs> sermon on uh, sexuality. I'll end with, the, with that note. So praise <clears throat> be coming cool back up and I'll say a prayer. <clears throat>